Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll speak with Paul Krugman, the New York Times columnist and Nobel Prize winning economist. He says we don't have an easy way of responding to the economic threat posed by the coronavirus, and that Trump's preoccupation with the stock market is a big mistake. Krugman's new book is Arguing with Zombies. Plus, later in the show, 20 Minutes Without Trump, a conversation with Rebecca Solnit about how she became a writer and a feminist growing up in San Francisco in the 80s. Her new book, a memoir, is called Recollections of My Non-Existence. But first, today's big news, of course, it's the Senate passing a $2.2 trillion economic stimulus package, the largest in American history, more than twice as big as Obama's in 2009. It promises a direct payment of $1,200 to millions of Americans and increased jobless aid to those out of work. And it creates a government bailout fund for distressed businesses. For comment and analysis, we turn to David Dayen. He's executive editor of The American Prospect. We saw him last night with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. He writes a daily report on coronavirus news. It's called Unsanitized at Prospect.org. I think it's the best single thing out there. David Dayen, welcome back. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Well, I live in L.A., south of Pico, and the many miles of Pico Boulevard from the ocean to downtown are filled with small businesses. Now almost all of them have closed because of the virus, and we are worried sick that Pico Boulevard is dying and that it's not going to come back. What's in the new bailout bill to help the, the thousands of people who work in the little restaurants and the cleaners and tailors and shoe repair places and car parts stores on Pico and the millions of other unemployed people everywhere in America. Yeah, that's a key part of this. Uh, obviously, small businesses are the lifeblood of communities. They are part of the fabric of communities. And without them, we will just have sort of an endless series of empty lots and uh, chain stores and Amazon. So what is so what is being done? So uh, part of the bill has uh, three hundred and fifty billion dollars earmarked for small business uh, loans. However, they are forgivable loans if the small business maintains its payroll, keeps people employed with the business. Then those loans will be turned into grants, essentially money that's given from the government to the business and then routed to the employees. You can sort of see it that way. Um, the one problem with this that I have is how it's administered. So the Small Business Administration is the entity that will create these loan guarantees with the private sector to uh, get this money out to the small business community. Uh, the Small Business Administration's current budget on loans of this type is about $25 billion, and that's for a whole year. They're going to have to scale up their operations about 12-fold and get this money out in a matter of weeks, not through a year, because most businesses don't have much more than a few weeks, small businesses don't have much more than a few weeks of reserves before they're, they're, they're just going to get caught short. So Small Business Administration is notoriously slow uh, with the small amount of money that they deal with already. 
you essentially go on their website and apply and you sort of take a number and you wait and you wait and you wait. And uh, they, they've been plagued by, you know, uh, delays, mismanagement, things like that. And now they're like the key agency, one of the most important agencies in the government uh, with the fate of millions of small businesses at, at uh, relying on them. And it's an example of how in this bill, there are all these sort of creaky systems that now suddenly become monumentally important if we're going to get the relief out, not just get it out, but get it out quick enough to actually allow small businesses and also individuals to survive. Let me ask about the, the unemployment pay. Liberals say it's the best thing in the bill. Do you agree with that? I agree it's the best thing in the bill. So what it would do is it would replace wages for those who've been unemployed. And we learned today that over 3 million Americans applied for first-time unemployment benefits last week, which is, uh, by a wide margin, the largest in American history. And so a lot of people have this need. And what this will do is it, it adds another $600 to that weekly unemployment check for everybody, which, you know, for the typical worker means that they are, are getting almost 100% replacement rate on what they would be getting if they were still employed. And that makes sense. I mean, this, this unemployment is through no fault of their own. It's because of this stay-at-home order and uh, the, 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 the pandemic and the havoc it's wreaking on the economy. So it holds harmless workers who would otherwise be gainfully employed. One problem I see with it, once again, is the mechanism by which this relief is being given to the American people. It's done through the state unemployment systems. And these systems are, are, are very unstable. It depends on what state you're in as to whether uh, they're, they're in good shape or not. A lot of them are underfunded. They're going to need help from the federal government just to pay the benefits they owe, let alone this extra $600 boost, which is coming directly from the government. But more important is the throughput. So what we're seeing is in a lot of states in the country, unemployment websites down, una people unable to get their applications in, uh, just the architecture of it, unable to deal with the millions of people who suddenly need unemployment relief. Uh, this is the big problem here. These, these are state-based systems that are often not funded at any kind of level to deal even with a normal recession, let alone the depression level of unemployed that we're seeing right now. And so uh, that's going to be a big point of contention, a big problem. How are we gonna get these state unemployment systems up and running so that they can continue to deliver relief and nobody slips through the cracks. Okay, after the unemployment pay, after the small business assistance, there's this $1,200 direct aid to families. And there, on first glance anyway, it seems like they have a much more efficient way of getting that money out. People are going to get direct deposits made into their bank accounts based on their 2018 tax returns. But I know yeah. that there are millions of low-wage <laughs> workers who didn't make enough money to pay income taxes. And, and uh, 
I I imagine that not everybody has direct deposit in in a bank account that the IRS does business with. Correct. So there are two problems with this. Number one, as you mentioned, uh, there's means testing in this. Uh, You only get the $1,200 check if you earn $75,000 or less uh, uh, and that it starts to phase out at that point and it completely phases out under 100000 And that's for individuals and for families, it's double. So like a two-income family, uh, if they make less than $200,000, they'll still get some relief, uh, but it starts to fade out at one fifty and goes out completely at two hundred. The problem is, is that's based on 2018 tax data. Uh, the 2019 tax data is incomplete. Some of us haven't finished our, our tax forms. You know, we have until April and, and now we have until July. So uh, they're basing it on 2018 tax data. So imagine this scenario. Someone made $100,000 uh, in calendar year 2018. Then they had a problem, maybe uh, got laid off in 2019, haven't had a lot of money coming in, and now really can't find a job because millions of people are unemployed now. That person wouldn't get anything uh, on the direct payment under this bill because they're basing it on two years ago and what their economic situation looked like then. This is really inequitable and, and silly. Uh, there was a much better way to do this, which is you could have given these checks to everybody and then just cleaned it up on the back end by saying, let's look at the 2020 tax data next year. And if you made over a certain threshold, if you wanted to do means testing, then you would just claw back that $1,200 payment. That's not the way that they did this. And now it's going to be a, a really incredibly inequitable and distressing situation that someone's hold a, held accountable for the income they were making two years ago. What about the people who didn't file an income tax return because they didn't make enough money? And what about the people who don't have uh, bank accounts? Right, exactly. That's the other problem with this. So uh, people who have direct deposit, uh, they'll get their money within, I think, three weeks is what they said. And the IRS has said they have about 70 million households on file in that fashion. People who don't have a bank account, and that's a a larger portion of the uh, population than than people might want to think, it's uh, close to a quarter of households are either unbanked or underbanked, according to the FDIC. Uh, And as you said, people who just didn't make enough money to owe taxes, that information wouldn't be on file with the IRS. So for all those other people, they say they're going to mail these checks. And they've already put out an estimate that it could take up to four months to oh. get those checks out to the public. In four months, that 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 it's going to be obsolete. If people have near-term needs, if their their rent is due April first, uh, getting a check in July is not going to do much good. And furthermore, they might not be living in the place that they're going to mail the check to by July if they end up getting evicted. So. Uh, this is a really challenging situation for the government to locate these people. It's, it's, it's just crushing that the people who need this relief the most are likely to not get it as fast as everyone else. And then there are the corporations. They can get help from the Fed. You've been talking about something called a corporate money cannon. What's a corporate money cannon? Well, I'll explain it. Um, So uh, uh, 
There's $425 billion in this bill that is intended to go towards a corporate bailout. Uh, but that $425 billion is the Treasury Department's participation in what is called a credit facility at the Federal Reserve. It's essentially chartering a bank uh, that will make loans to these large corporations with very little strings attached, uh, probably not much interest, not much collateral, not many conditions. And the conditions that are there can be waived by the Treasury at his discretion. Um, and the $425 billion is just a portion. Uh, essentially, the Federal Reserve, like any bank, can sort of loan above that capital that's in there. And uh, it's, it's a 10 to 1 leverage ratio, which means that that $425 billion gets spun into $4.25 trillion. And this wow. is for the largest corporations in America. So remember the numbers here. 350 billion for small businesses, millions of them, and 4 trillion for the largest corporations in America. Now that that seems inequitable to you, I, I assume. Uh, yes. <laughs> and furthermore, the conditions are different, right? Uh, small businesses have to keep everybody on payroll. Uh, there's a tax credit for large corporations to keep people on payroll, but they're not obligated to do so. They could just get these loans fire people if they wanted to. Uh, the backstop is already there with this boosted unemployment insurance, and they could use the money for executive compensation. There are very few restrictions around that. They could use the money for dividends out to their shareholders. They couldn't use the money for stock buybacks, which is another way to leak to shareholders. However, uh, as soon as they pay back the loan, they can go right back to doing buybacks. Uh, they could use the money for mergers and acquisitions to scoop up all these distressed companies that are going to be out there and aggrandize their power. This will transform America. This is, uh, a, 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 I've called it a money cannon because it's, it's money the likes of which we can't even conceive of or think about uh, that, that's being shot directly at the largest companies in America who can use it pretty much in unrestricted fashion. There's an oversight mechanism, a five-member panel and an inspector general, but that's all after the fact. That's after the money is out the door, this oversight panel can write a report saying, I don't think you should have given them that money. And that and a dime will get you a cup of coffee. So uh, this is, uh, uh, I think, the major part of this bill. You have temporary relief for individuals and you have permanent inequality transforming relief for giant businesses. Let's go back to the workers here. All workers are not unemployed. A friend who lives in Riverside reports that all the men in her Latino neighborhood are exhausted from working overtime at the Amazon warehouse and the other shipping centers out there. We know they aren't getting protective gear. That's true of most people who've been declared to be essential workers. Some of them have started to protest their working conditions. Some of them are even going on strike. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, and I think you'll see a lot more of that if Donald Trump follows through with this idea of reversing 
uh, his his order for everybody to stay at home and telling people to pack the churches on Easter and everybody go back to work. Uh, we're seeing at places like Amazon, uh, we're seeing Domino's delivery people, we're seeing uh, garbage workers in Pittsburgh who aren't getting protective equipment, we're seeing bus drivers in Birmingham, Alabama who aren't getting protective equipment, we're seeing workers at a chicken factory uh, that's run by Purdue, one of the uh, giants in food processing, all say, we are not working under these conditions. Uh, interestingly, in 1919, we saw what was known as a general strike. That was during this, yeah. the, the influenza epidemic of the, the largest pandemic of that era. And I think the conditions are pretty ripe to see that again if these essential workers don't get the protections that they feel they need in order to not be, you know, uh, signing a, 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 not a death warrant necessarily, but, but putting themselves and their families at risk simply by going to work. Uh, so I, I think this is going to be a, a huge issue that you're going to see only expand if uh, uh, workers are, tr uh, there's an attempt to bring workers back to work prematurely. Well, now we come to the big question, the, the inevitable question, will the pandemic help or hurt Trump's re-election chances? My pessimistic friends point to the fact that his approval ratings have gone up a point or two in the last couple of days. My optimistic friends say that's not going to last. Trump is incapable of being the kind of bring us together leader that this moment requires. His whole life is ridiculing opponents, stoking hatred for his critics. Uh, these Trump's tactics are not going to work in a crisis, especially if the recession is a deep one. So who do you think is right here, the pessimists or the optimists? Well, I think that typically in a time of crisis, you see a sort of rally round the flag dynamic around uh, uh, American leaders. So whether it was Gulf War One or 9-11, you saw huge approval ratings for people who happened to be president at that time. Relative to that, the approval rating uptick that we're seeing for Donald Trump is extremely meager. And it should be said that those rapid rises, the rally round the flag, uh, effect uh, dissipated rather quickly. If we continue to go down the path that we're headed down, which is incredibly tragic, with more cases, more deaths, uh, a, a strain bordering on collapse of the hospital networks in America, uh, and uh, the continued uh, difficulties with testing and tracing, and if this thing plays out both economically and as a public health matter, uh, I think you're going to see uh, questions about the leadership of Donald Trump through this 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 crisis. And uh, you know, I, I think that obviously we're we're likely to see Joe Biden be the Democratic nominee, and uh, the, the, he is positioned uh, to capitalize on this failure in leadership. I mean, we certainly already have the raw material to, to understand that. We had weeks to prepare ourselves 
for this inevitable pandemic to show up on our shores. Uh, uh, there was no real testing infrastructure that was built in that week's long period. There was no replenishing of the crucial supplies that medical facilities were going to need to deal with the crush of patients. Uh, the president said, everything's fine. We're going to be down to zero people. Uh, when he was asked about disbanding the pandemic task force within the National Security Council, he said, I take no responsibility for that. There is a mountain of evidence showing that this president did not take this seriously and that he exacerbated uh, what is now a, an absolute tragedy in this country. And uh, I think uh, after the initial wear off of this rallying effect that the American people are going to get that. So uh, if that puts me in the optimist camp, then that's where I'm at. Well, my view is that most voters made up their minds about Donald Trump a long time ago, and there aren't many left who are truly undecided. And that means the result of the election is going to come down to turnout. The Democratic base is bigger than Trump's base. So the big question is about what voting will be like if the virus is still active in November. Right. Uh, that's why we need universal vote by mail. What, what, what do you think about the voting situation? This is a huge issue. We've been covering it at The Prospect. We're going to continue to cover it. Our writing fellow, Brittany Gibson, is, is focused on this. Our deputy editor, Gabrielle Gurley, has also been writing some stories. Uh, this is a big issue. Um, in the uh, aid package that uh, the Senate uh, passed unanimously, there is $400 million that goes toward elections and, and getting them ready for November. This is about a tenth of what Ron Wyden and Amy Klobuchar asked for. Uh, uh, and, and in the bill that they asked for, they, they sought universal uh, vote by mail pickup and 15 days of early voting to spread it out so that there aren't large gatherings. Um, that, that Those guarantees did not come through. It's a meager amount of money. And so states are, in some sense, on their own a bit. And, and all these states are going to have cash-strapped budgets. Now, uh, there's $150 billion in the bill to, for aid to states, but that's going to be plugged into education and health care and all these other things that states have to provide and, and not necessarily elections. So this $400 million is likely to be the largest uh, sum, and that has to be, of course, shared among 50 states. Uh, you're seeing some states move to uh, expand early voting, more vote by mail, but it's going to be scattershot. I mean, you know, there's not one federal standard right now. It's going to be all 50 states coming up with different ways to maximize or, or maybe even not maximize participation in these elections. And I, I agree with you that it's crucial that we figure out a mechanism by which everybody has an uh, opportunity to vote and, and participate in their democracy, uh, but we're not getting, uh, we're not seeing the cooperation on the part of the Republican Party, who uh, historically doesn't really want everybody to vote, uh, has used suppression tactics uh, routinely uh, to narrow the universe of voters. And uh, this becomes magnified in a pandemic environment. So we don't know what November is going to look like. I think some states are going to do this better than others. And one uh, sidelight to this is that 
States like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania have Democratic governors now where they didn't, uh, uh, you know, in, in years past. And they, they might be more inclined to, to, you know, maximize participation. We've actually seen Ohio move to more of a vote by mail uh, setup. Uh, so that's that's kind of promising. Mike DeWine, who's the governor of Ohio, has been one of the, the national leaders uh, throughout this pandemic. So it's it's unclear, but it's going to vary from state to state. And, and that's uh, a, a distressing scenario, but something we're going to keep following. One last thing. Uh, Donald Trump's hotel chain is barred from receiving taxpayer aid under the big business provisions of this bill. That is good news. It's good news if that, that was the end of the story, but it's not the end of the story. Uh, if you go back to the small business uh, uh, money, the, lend, uh, the, the lending that can be used there, um, interestingly, the federal government has probably a different conception of the word small business than you and I. Uh, <laughs> You, if you have under 500 employees, you are considered a small business. So if you have 499 employees, you would be eligible for small business loans under this, this bill. And not only that, but if you have multiple locations, as long as you have less than 500 employees at any one of those locations, you also would be eligible for small business support under this bill. And that means that restaurant chains or hotel chains, ding, ding, would be eligible uh, to receive these funds. And that includes the Trump Organization. Uh, as long as each individual property that Trump owns has less than 500 employees, they would qualify for small business support. And, and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past them to try to get it. David Dayan, he's executive editor of the American Prospect, and he writes a daily report on the world of coronavirus called Unsanitized. It's indispensable. You can read it at prospect.org. David, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time to talk with Paul Krugman, the New York Times columnist and Nobel Prize-winning economist. He's written several bestsellers, and now he has a new one out. It's called Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. Paul Krugman, welcome to the program. Hi there. Well, the thing that's on everybody's mind uh, this week, of course, is the coronavirus. What can you tell us about your assessment of where we stand in the coronavirus? Okay. Now, I have to admit, I did not see this one coming. Probably should have because epidemiologists have been warning us for a while. The coronavirus it actually ties together a couple of themes, uh, certainly themes that I raise in arguing with zombies and themes that I've worried about uh, over time. Um, one of them is just uh, 
sort of understanding modern globalization. I mean, and the uh, the reason that this is so economically scary, at some level, uh, it matters less what might happen to GDP than the fact that we might all die. But uh, the uh, but in terms of of the economics, what's happening now is that we live in a world where globalization isn't the old-fashioned thing where you produce you know wheat in one place and wine in another place and so on. It's it's a world of these global supply chains where everything is integrated with everything else. And China is in many ways the workshop of the world and it's currently largely not shut down. So that's a that's a pretty serious blow to all of us. And then the kind of situation we find ourselves in, this is we're in a a very vulnerable situation where the the, the economy's shock absorbers are shot. The normal response to an economic downturn is that the Federal Reserve and its counterparts abroad cut interest rates, and that perks up spending, and that keeps things rolling along. But interest rates are very, very low to start with. There isn't very much room to cut. There's actually none at all in, in much of the world and hardly any in the United States. And here comes this thing, which aside from disrupting production, it's also going to disrupt consumption. People are not going to go out to eat. People are not going to travel. Um, and And we have no easy way of responding to it. So this is, this is I, I, I wrote a lot about depression economics because the 2008 shock pretty pu- pushed us into this territory where, where the easy answers to a depressed economy no longer were sufficient. And we're pretty much back into depression economics again now. And, of course, there's the political side of the coronavirus. Uh, the president's main concern seems to be with the stock market. First of all, the stock market is just way, way less important, either for its economic significance or as an indicator than people seem to imagine. I mean, the famous old remark by the great economist Paul Samuelson was that the stock market um, had predicted nine of the last five recessions. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, what, what the health of the market is not the health of the economy. And the, it's true that when the stock market falls, people feel poorer, but uh, you know, most people don't own a lot of stock, and uh, the the people who are who do own a lot are actually tend to be very affluent and and have a uh, are, their spending is not going to be that much affected by falling stocks. So the stock market really shouldn't be a concern. But of course, for for Trump, it's a symbol of what he imagines to be uh, his his credible success. I think it's almost a, a an emblem of his virility or something. And uh, so for him, it matters a lot. For the rest of us, not so much, except except that it is interesting. Uh, so um, uh, as we speak, uh, the, the Fed just cut interest rates dramatically, uh, but dramatically is still probably not remotely enough given where we are. And the stock market proceeded to plunge, basically saying that, that well, mostly saying that, that markets are psychological, but, uh, and God knows what actually led let it down, but but uh, at any rate, to the extent that people who are investing uh, have any sense, they are they are not feeling confident about our ability to handle this economically. Well, a zombie is a corpse come back to life, a creature that's impossible to kill. Zombies started out in voodoo cults in Haiti, but the zombies you are arguing with in your new book are not Haitian. No, and they're not people. They're ideas. They're ideas that that should be dead, that have been killed by evidence, but 
but refuse to, to stop. They just keep shambling along, eating our brains. And they play an unfortunately large role in the way we talk about, about the economy and other issues. And what are those zombies? Well, there's a bunch, but uh, the two most important ones are tax cuts, especially tax cuts for the rich pay for themselves, which has been tested many times, has never, ever worked, but it's now still official doctrine of the Republican Party. And climate change is a hoax, that nothing is happening, it's not man-made, and besides, there's nothing we can do about it. A completely different question that that uh, arises in your new book, Arguing with the Zombies. Why is it that the people who think climate change is a hoax are also against universal health care? In the abstract, these two issues have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, um, and it is an interesting question. You, you know, you, you'd like to say, occasionally find people saying with, with an air of great wisdom, well, politics is not one-dimensional. There are many issues. But in fact, U.S. politics is one-dimensional. Tell me where somebody stands on climate change, and I can tell you where they stand on, on tax cuts for the rich, and I can tell you where they stand on universal health care. And uh, um, they all do line up together. I would say that there are two reasons. One is, one is that people, I think on both sides, but certainly people on the right believe that there's a kind of a halo effect, uh, that if you can point to successful government action on any front, that the, the public will become more receptive to the idea of doing things on other fronts. So if you can point to successful government action to protect the environment, then people might say, well, if we can protect the environment and clean the air, why can't we also provide universal health care? The line that says the government can't do anything good or anything right is imperiled if you do anything good, even if it's on an issue that, that really should be something everybody favors, like not destroying the planet. The other thing is that zombie ideas are kept alive uh, in large part, not entirely, uh, but a lot of what keeps the zombies shambling along is money for billionaires. And the uh, many of the same financial interests that that push the line that tax cuts pay for themselves and universal health care is impossible also have a financial stake in keeping us burning coal as long as possible. Well, the nation has endorsed Bernie for president. I know you have some worries about Bernie and his economic program. The column you wrote on that recently got almost three thousand comments. What are your worries and, and how, how big are they? I'm actually not very worried about Bernie's program, partly because I, there, I think there's zero chance that, that the more ambitious parts of it would actually be implemented. Medicare for all with the, with the abolition of private insurance, as opposed to you know, something like a public option that lets people buy into Medicare, is not going to pass even a Democratic Congress. So the, And I'm not really very worried about his, his economic program. I find it disturbing that he calls himself a socialist when I actually know something about socialism. He's not a socialist. He's what the Europeans would call a, uh, a social democrat. He favors strong welfare state, uh, increased bargaining power for workers, universal health care, all of which I support too. Uh, he, he describes Denmark as a role model, as, at which I agree that Denmark is a very good role model. Uh, the Danes are very insistent that they are not socialists. And Bernie doesn't scare me at all. I don't even, the, the economic program, even if he could get everything he wants, which he can't, uh, I, I think the, it's not a problem. I think we, the economy is much more resilient to high taxes and, and strong social programs than the right wing wants us to believe. And let's talk specifically about the 
wealth tax proposed by Elizabeth Warren. You're a economist. What's your what's your professional assessment of the wealth tax proposal? To some extent, it's a leap into the unknown because we haven't really ever seen anybody do this. America invented progressive taxation, believe it or not, back in the early 20th century, and and we've done it successfully on incomes, but a, a really large progressive wealth tax has never been done. Nobody I know thinks it would be destructive to the economy. No one is really concerned that, that people, entrepreneurship will be discouraged because somebody uh, is is worried about having to pay taxes on his second $50 million, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there are questions about how much revenue you can actually raise. How how easily will wealthy people manage to uh, to avoid the tax? And that's a hard one because previous wealth taxes have always been kind of partial in scope, so that it was relatively easy for rich people to to shunt their wealth into uh, make basically engage in accounting maneuvers that that shielded them from taxes. And the proposals out there. Uh, are for something much more comprehensive, and then views differ. So I'm, I tend to be on the optimistic side. When when I read that Elizabeth Warren was getting uh, Emmanuel Saez and 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 Gabrielle Zuckman to put together her tax proposal, that that's like that's like getting Beyonce to sing at your wedding, right? These are the, <laughs> the best guys in the in the field. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah, so this was this was th- these are these are very smart guys. Now there are some. Other very smart guys who are dubious, but I, I think the worst thing that could happen is it fails to yield the revenue that we hope for. I, I, I don't see a problem with it as, a, as an economic uh, measure. You have a section in your book, Arguing with Zombies, on the end game of the conservatives. And you have a quote from David Frum. If the conservatives become convinced that they cannot win democratically, they will not abandon conservatism. They will reject democracy, close quote, David Frum. That's frightening. Do you think he's right? Oh, yes. I mean, we're, we're pretty much there already. I mean, this is, uh, do you think if, if Trump loses that he will go quietly? We've already seen really massive efforts at vote, voter suppression. On dark nights, I think that America is going down the Hungarian route. Uh, on paper, we still have democratic institutions, but in practice, Thanks to uh, vote suppression, intimidation of the news media, gerrymandering, et cetera, et cetera, we become a a, a one-party authoritarian state. And we again, we've seen that happen. Uh, you know, not not in a distant past. You don't have to talk uh, Adolf Hitler. You just talk about Viktor Orban and what has happened to Hungary since 2010. Look look at what's happened to Hungary in uh, in, in recent years. And uh, same thing happening in Poland. It's very clear that we have the same forces and the same motives at work. Uh, the only, the only real difference, I, I think, is that Trump is not as smart as Viktor Orban. If he was, we, we'd probably be lost already. Paul Krugman, his new book has the terrific title "Arguing with Zombies." Paul, thanks for all of your work and thanks for talking with us today. Okay, take care. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles. Now it's time for 20 Minutes Without Trump, 
special feature of this program designed to combat Trump fatigue. For that, we turn to Rebecca Solnit. She's the author of more than 20 books. Of course, they include the classic Men Explain Things to Me. And right now we need her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, which is about New Orleans after Katrina and how people help each other in a disaster. Also her book, Hope in the Dark, it changed the lives of a lot of people, including me, and we need some of that hope right now. She writes for The New Yorker. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian, and now she has a new book out. It's called Recollections of My Non-Existence. We reached her today at home in San Francisco. Hi, Rebecca. Morning, John. This is a book about how you became a writer and a feminist in 1980s San Francisco. There's an unforgettable passage about the non-existence that's in your title, I wonder if you could read it for us. We often say silenced, which presumes someone attempted to speak. In my case, it wasn't a silencing because no speech was stopped. It never started, or it had been stopped so far back, I don't remember how it happened. It never occurred to me to speak to the men who pressured me then, because it didn't occur to me that I had the authority to assert myself thus, or that they had any obligation or inclination to respect my assertions, or that my words would do anything but make everything worse. I became expert at fading and slipping and sneaking away, backing off, squirming out of tight situations, dodging unwanted hugs and kisses and hands, at taking up less and less space on the bus, as yet another man spread into my seat, at gradually disengaging or suddenly absenting, absenting myself. At the art of non-existence, since existence was so perilous, it was a strategy hard to unlearn on those occasions when I wanted to approach someone directly. How do you walk right up to someone with an open heart and open arms amid decades of survival by evasion? All this menace made it difficult to stop and trust long enough to connect, but it made it difficult to keep moving, too, and it sometimes seemed as though it was all meant to wall me up at home like a person prematurely in her coffin. You write about a lot of scary things and creepy things that men did to you when you were young and some horrifying things that men have done to other women. But there's also a lot here that's exhilarating and beautiful. The very next paragraph, for example. Walking was my freedom, my joy, my affordable transportation, my method of learning to understand places, my way of being in the world, my way of thinking through my life and my writing, my way of orienting myself. That it might be too unsafe to do was something I wasn't willing to accept, though everyone else seemed more than willing to accept it on my behalf. Be a prisoner, they urged cheerfully. Accept your immobility. Wall yourself up like an anchorite. I was driven to go somewhere. There was partly a metaphysical urge to make a life, to become and transform, to do. But literal travel expressed that passion and let off that pressure. I was never going to give up walking. It was a means of thinking, of discovering, of being myself. And to give it up would have meant giving up all those things. Let's talk about this movement in, in your book between the, the horrible things and, and the exhilarating things. It's all pretty intense for the reader. Yep. You know, I wasn't here to protect people. It might not be a book for everyone. But I really wanted to talk about a different 
kind of impact than we usually talk about. We have a kind of binary logic around violence against women. Either an extremely bad thing happened to you, which we'll treat as exceptional, though domestic violence, child abuse, sexual violence are so common they've impacted so many of us directly. But we also say either it happened to you or it didn't happen to you. And hey, if it didn't happen to you, you got off scot-free. But as my friend Heather Smith said, and I quote her in the book, young women are encouraged to constantly imagine their own murder. We've started to have a conversation about the fact that black parents have to give their sons what's been nicknamed the talk about the police and other authorities, white supremacy that's going to criminalize them and want to kill them. We don't talk about the fact, and we should, that something similar happens to little girls of every race. Warnings about how you can't do this, you can't go there, you can't wear that, you can't be out at this hour, you can't take that job, you can't go camping and hiking alone, you can't go to the party, you can't have the cocktail, that your whole whole life is about limiting your possibilities to reduce your vulnerability. In the context that I grew up in, a context of people unwilling to do absolutely anything, about violence against women, even to recognize it. This was such a nightmare for me, an undeclared war in which we were the victims, the targets were supposed to figure out how to survive, and nobody wanted to change the circumstances or talk about ending the war. Of course, feminists were talking about it then, sometimes in very brilliant and powerful ways. But, uh, you know, this book begins when I was 19, And I was many years away from being directly in touch with the writing and the voices and the people who were actually diagnosing this as an epidemic of violence that impacted us all. So it was really this terrible solitude, too, of being so threatened, so in fear that this was going to happen to me, and so unable to find anyone, even with anything useful, to say, like, this is not how your life should be lived. This is not who we should be as a society. Instead of, like, oh, you should cut your hair off. You should dress like a man. You should buy a gun. You should take the taxi and buy the car and move to the neighborhood you can't afford. You know, people had all these solutions that were just alter your life to accept that men want to grievously harm you, maybe unto death. And we don't really want to hear about it. And then a second part of this book is about reading and learning to write about these things. And there's a passage I love. I'd like you to read on page 108. Sometimes when you are devastated, you want not a reprieve, but a mirror of your condition or a reminder that you are not alone in it. Other times it is not the propaganda or the political art that helps you face a crisis but whatever gives you respite from it. Milan Kundera's The Book of Laughter and Forgetting was published in The New Yorker in installments the second half of 1980 and passed along in a stack of magazines, probably from one of my mother's friends. The chapters were, like Jorge Luis Borges' Labyrinths a few years earlier, revelatory. They gave me a sense of how you could mix things, how the personal and the political could spell each other, how a narrative could be oblique, how prose like poetry could jump from subject to subject or take flight, of how the categories were optional, though it take me another decade to find my way through their walls. How the categories were optional. That's big, and that's what you do in, in, in this book. Let's talk about that. 
Yeah, no, this is really two stories braided together. And somebody called it an impersonal memoir, which I love because it is a very story about a very peculiar and specific life I've had, how I became a writer, how I gained a voice, but also a very generic story because my life as a writer and even the profession of writing is perhaps unusual or individual. But my life as a woman, I think, has been very generic. I've been impacted since before birth by violence against women. You know, it will never not be something I have to contend with one way or another. I'm watching the girls around me grow into young women and have to deal with it, with uh, watching it with horror. And I wanted to write about the very ordinary experience of how it affects you in ways I hadn't seen it described and to really put out there that we need to talk maybe in a more complex way about the more subtle ways it impacts you and impacts all of us. And so much of what happens to women is because of voicelessness, because you can't speak up and say no in a way that will actually have power, because people won't believe you when you said it happened, because so much is orchestrated to discredit you and keep you out of the conversation, out of the room, out of the positions of power that are so much about the power of voices when voices have power. And because also we live in a world where some voices have too much power. Harvey Weinstein was able to use his voice and his money to silence dozens of women, some of the most high-profile women in the world, to use non-disclosure agreements, lawyers, Mossad spies, threats and intimidation, shame and harassment, and... You know, within a society that made non-disclosure agreements, blaming and routine disbelief that women were capable of bearing witness or credible witnesses to our own lives. So we have people who had not enough voice who are so often women, people who had too much voice who are men, particularly white men in positions of power. And that anti-democracy of voices has really been a central subject for me. And I wanted to describe what it meant to me in a really intimate, personal way growing up and how it became something I took on as a writer. And what formed you as a writer and a feminist, of course, was not only reading and thinking, but but doing things. And I have to say, I love your acknowledgments. These, I think, are my favorite acknowledgments I can remember reading. Can we talk about your acknowledgments? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. They're often such a shopping list, and I wanted to make it a kind of, you know, prose poem of gratitude, because this is a book about a bunch of men, mostly strangers, threatening me, a friend who was almost murdered, my father's violence and mentioned in the background, so many other terrible things. But the book begins with an extraordinary man, a black building manager, World War II vet, son of sharecroppers, who'd come up in the Great Migration, who made, who gave me the refuge in which I became a writer, a little apartment in the building he was a manager of. So yeah, so he's at the beginning of these acknowledgements, Mr. James V. Young. And, and I'd and, always wanted to acknowledge him, so he's got a big place in this book. And can I ask about, how about if you, you want to read some of this? <laughs> okay. So nobody's ever asked me to read from my acknowledgements before. This is so great. <laughs> Here we go. And this is page three, because there's a lot to be grateful for, even in a book 
that's partly about misogyny and violence and difficulty and silencing. Thank you to both my 1991 Gulf War and 2002-2003 Iraq War, Bay Area Direct Action Secret Society, acronym BADASS, anti-war affinity groups. Thank you to the handsome bikers at the Denny's on the I-5 north of Los Angeles who listened and let me convince them that Anita Hill was telling the truth one morning at a shared table in October 1991. It was a great landmark moment for me in its own way, and they were really handsome, too. (laughs) Thank you, Cleve Jones, for that moment in 2018 when, because I showed up with a magnificent Defend Democracy banner artist Stephanie Sajuko had made, you put me at the head of a march of gay men down our central boulevard, perhaps my greatest moment of arrival as a San Franciscan. A lot of people are surprised that the gay movement was so important to you in your development as a feminist. How did that happen? You know, I am a straight girl, tragically, but <laughs> <laughs> but I am so proud and so grateful I grew up in what was, at least when I was growing up, the queerest city in America, and... Um, Gay men in particular, but all people refusing their gender assignments, dykes and lesbians and trans and drag queens and so many kinds of people were just there saying, we refused our assignment. We refused the binary logic and the lockdown that is heterosexual roles. And, you know, we're liberated by example so often. And I feel that I've learned also from black rights movements from the Native American land rights movement that was such a formative part of my coming up, the Western Shoshone Defense Project. You learn by how people see things differently, by how they question assumptions, by how they refuse the inevitability of the status quo. And gay culture was just so encouraging And so many individual gay men who are my friends, and you all know who you were, were so generous, so warm. They really liked women in ways straight men often didn't seem like they particularly did, except in specifically utilitarian ways. And they were able to have these conversations. And living in a black neighborhood, I felt like I learned from my neighbors a lot just about what you can do with words, about playful banter, the music of spoken language, of how just a greeting can become a gift, of how to talk to passers-by on the street. And gay men prove that every conversation could be an occasion for wit, for warmth, for insight, for critique, for irony. And there is also so much humor. We see humor often as something trivial, and there's a kind of vicious humor, specifically by a lot of straight male stand-up comics, that's a kind of punching down But there was a gay humor that was punching holes in people's assumptions and pointing out what was ridiculous in everyday life and heteronormative stuff. And a big part of my cinema education was watching movies in the Castro Movie Theater, one of the last great movie palaces in the U.S., and sitting there in the dark listening to snickers and murmurs and sighs and groans pointed out to me what was ridiculous or campy or queer about movies, like the movie Giant, one of my favorite movies of all time, with with Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson, James Dean, Sal Mineo, 
is full of secret homoerotic campiness and gay men taught me that because I've seen that movie there over and over. You know, the Magnificent Seven begins with, oh God, Yule Brunner sitting on some other hunk's bed and it's like, it is so gay. But these <laughs> men, they were so kind, they were so supportive. They could be funny even about heartbreak and devastation, which is part of how you survive those things. And they were just really good friends and joys to be around. And, you know, I my black neighborhood, the Western Edition, was really about one neighborhood over from the Castro. So I had specific friends, but I was also around just the way people lived in public in the days before AIDS and during AIDS, AIDS and after protease inhibitors and it was just a huge part of my life and gay men and queer people and lesbians and trans friends and stuff still are. And, you know, it's a blessing. Rebecca Solnit, her new book is Recollections of My Non-Existence. Rebecca, thank you for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Thank you so much. That's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.